On May 14, 1970, there was a massacre at Jackson State University. The massacre occurred when Mississippi State Troopers, accompanied by the city of Jackson's police department, unprovoked and inexplicably shot over 400 rounds into the women's dormitory, Alexander Hall, for nearly 30 seconds, resulting in the killing of two, two men, Philip Lafayette Gibbs and James Earl Green. Philip Gibbs was a junior, a political science major, and a father of an 18-month-old son. James Green was a senior at Jim Hill High School, who was planning to go to college and run track. He was shot that night walking through campus on the way home from his job at a local grocer. There were at least 12 others wounded by gunfire and numerous others injured from glass and other projectiles from the shooting. Again, this doesn't account for the psychological damage done to the entire Jackson State community and black Mississippians as a whole. This massacre is largely unknown in the American conscious. For a few reasons it's unknown. One, the campus shootings at Kent State in Ohio had occurred 10 days earlier. The killing of four white students there garnered the media's attention and the attention of historians uh, subsequently. I want to add that the students at Kent State stood in solidarity with Jackson State students and Jackson State University and today their Museum of Remembrance from the shootings uh, honor and remember the massacre at Jackson State. I want to say this again. The Kent State students stood in solidarity, but the media, the country at large, and historians to this day largely ignore the shootings at Jackson State. The other is that Mississippi's local newspaper and local television shows were, quite frankly, uh, white supremacist sympathizers at, at, at least they were white supremacist super sympathizers and in some cases um, tied in with the Mississippi Sovereignty Committee and the Citizens Council um, there in Mississippi. So there's that. So that means that it wasn't covered with any thoroughness or any empathy or in any detail or with any investigative uh, professionalism on a local level. And again, the national media lumped these shootings in with Kent State and largely has ignored it. Lastly, and this is unfortunate, but it's absolutely true. It didn't garner a lot of attention then and hasn't since then because mass killings of black people by white law enforcement in Mississippi is not news. It's just simply business as usual. On the Parlay in All Blue, we are going to take two episodes to attempt to bring this tragedy at Jackson State into our conscious. As Margaret Walker said, the least we can do is remember. The first episode uh, will be with Dr. Nancy Bristow, who is a professor of history at the University of Puget Sound, and she's written a book that I suggest you get 
steeped in the blood of, of racism, black power, law and order, and the 1970 shootings at Jackson State College. It's a detailed historical account that puts the shootings into their proper political context, gives history on the university, the state, the mind state of the state of uh, Mississippi, and the mind state of how students were informed by ongoing aggressive racism of citizens, white citizens, riding through the campus for years, hitting and injuring students, throwing rots, throwing eggs, hurling racist insults at Jackson State students. She covers all of that. And it's, she has talked to numerous witnesses, poured through court records, investi investigative documents where they exist, and all of the things that you would expect from a book written by a historian. That's episode one. Uh, also, I want to note that Dr. Bristow is donating her proceeds from the book to the Jackson State's Gibbs and Green Memorial. Next week, we will be joined by Vernon Steve Weekly, who is a survivor of the shooting. He was shot that evening and wounded in the leg. He will um, talk to us about what it was like to be a student there, what it was like that night during the shooting, and most importantly, what it means to reconcile all of this and recover or attempt to recover. He has a first-hand personal account of it uh, titled Standing at the Edge of Madness, a story of one man's incredible struggle with the dark side of racism. That is his book, but that will be next week. Again, this week is Dr. Nancy Bristow. This is important. I suggest you sit with this and, and, and absorb it. And again, no podcast replaces history or studying history. No documentary replaces studying history. These are things that we as a country should know and remember. These are things that black people should know and remember. And these are things that Jacksonians and Mississippians should know and remember. Thank you as always for supporting us. Listen, discuss, and share. And if you want to support our work, you can go to buymeacoffee backslash Mark Dawson, buymeacoffee.com and look for Mark Dawson's Parlay in All Blue and you'll find us there. Thank you again and welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. Dr. Nancy Bristow, welcome to the Parlay in All Blue. How are you? I am so well and just honored to be with you here. I, you know, so I'm really thankful to, to have you on because this book, as someone who is a Jackson State graduate and now a, a parent of a Jacksonian, the this book, Steeped in the Blood of Racism, uh, about the, the shootings at Jackson State are, are just so, it's personal. Let me say that. It's, it's something that I think we all should be aware of, but it's also really personal. Now, having said that, I do have, and only one thing that I take issue with in the book, and it's right at the beginning, and you start with, and it's Nina Simone's birthday, Mississippi Goddamn. Everybody knows Mississippi Goddamn. I don't think so. 
I don't think everybody knows. <laughs> I don't think everybody knows. I think that's a great song, and I think we think we know, but I don't think that everyone knows. So let's start with that, actually. Uh, what happened on May 15, 1970? Well, tragically, there had been trouble on Lynch Street, a white uh, thoroughfare that runs right through the middle of campus between the western suburbs where many white people live and downtown Jackson. And so Lynch Street was always a, a site of unease for the students at Jackson State because of the white motorists and their tendency to yell racial epithets, even to throw things, to speed through campus. And so every spring there would be some sort of conflict um, that would result in some rock throwing and would sometimes then bring the police to campus. It had happened actually the night before on the night of May 13, 14, uh, but the police didn't enter the campus. They just simply closed off the road uh, and that prevented any further problems. But on the evening of May 14th, some rocks were thrown again and the street was closed off again. But some students commandeered a dump truck that was parked nearby and drove it onto Lynch Street, and it stalled in front of Stewart Hall, the men's dormitory, and someone lit it on fire. Now, remember, this is the spring of 1970, so that is chicken feed compared to what's happening around college campuses all over the country. It's not a major event, but it's enough to bring law enforcement to campus to, quote, protect the firefighters. Well, the firefighters didn't need protection, and as soon as the fire's put out, they are headed to the east side of campus, but go up and around campus to avoid provoking the students in any way. But the Mississippi Highway and Safety Patrol and the Jackson police, against their orders, march right down the middle of the, of the street, right down to the middle of campus. They pause in front of Alexander Hall, a women's dormitory. They turn to the left with their guns raised. And when a bottle drops, they open fire and they shoot for 28 seconds. 150 rounds, maybe 400 buckshot marks on the side of that women's dormitory. They spray up and down the side of the dormitory and into a crowd of young people that were gathered outside the dormitory. Uh, it was a hot May evening. Women had to be inside by 1130. So this was a common gathering place. So there are a lot of students there and they simply opened fire uh, for 28 seconds. They killed two young men, Philip Lafayette Gibbs and James Earl Green. Uh, and they injure at least 12 others in terms of physical injury, but obviously a, a devastating, a traumatic injury in some ways for, for an entire class of young people. And uh, I think it's worth noting again, just as just we set the tone here, because as I was preparing for this episode, I called uh, that not not necessarily just my son, but a, a few students there. I talked to a few students there and just asked sort of what happened. And, you know, you have some people who are really on it and, and know it or what have you. And some people will say, well, yeah, it was the Klan that did it or it was something like that. And it's but this was actually state violence. And, and, and now, hold on. I want to bifurcate out that Ku Klux Klan had heavily in, infiltrated both the Jackson Police Department and the Mississippi uh, highway patrol. So I don't want to leave that out. But this was an act of state violence. That's right. And it's really important, though, that point is very well taken, because not only is there extraordinary Klan membership inside both forces, but these forces, remember, the highway patrol at this point has not a single patrolman. There's not one black member of the Mississippi Highway Patrol. And even the Jackson City Police with 279 officers has only 19 black officers. So this is a white force they're armed not in a way that one, if the, if the issue is crowd control, you do not arm yourself as if you're going to war. And that's what these police forces had done. They have one force has double lot buckshot. The other has number one buckshot, both very, very heavy buckshot. Both 
leaders of those forces maintain that they're using that heavy buckshot because, you know, you got to look serious. They need to know you'll shoot and that, you know, you mean business. The highway patrol is allowed to carry personal ammunition. So some people have armor piercing bullets in their weapons. They have two submachine guns and they have an armored tank, what was called Thompson's tank and named for the mayor, um, which had been purchased originally in 1964 to fight against the civil rights activists during Freedom Summer uh, and was deployed that night as well. So they come in an all white force armed to the teeth with with really the armaments of warfare. Um, so, yeah, your point is very well taken that, yes, there's Klan membership and it's and it's not only that, but this is a very dangerous force. Yeah. Were the the students at Jackson State, were they shooting at the police or highway patrolmen that night? Like, was there shooting or was there no. any? And I, and I want to explain. Let me say a word about that, because it's a very important question. Okay. After the officers have opened fire um, in the aftermath, when they're interviewed by the FBI, they will claim that there was a sniper. Mm-hmm. By 1970, that is a line of conversation. It's a narrative that's being used by law enforcement to justify opening fire in situations where they should not have done so. There was very, very limited throwing maybe of rocks and bottles, that kind of thing at the officers, but literally very little. Uh, the four the four journalists who were on the scene said they didn't see but a few things thrown. No one in the police force needed to be hospitalized. There was no need for extra cleanup on Lynch Street the next morning. So there's very little throwing going on, except perhaps of insults. Uh, mm-hmm. Not surprisingly, um, mm-hmm. but in the aftermath, the claim that there was a sniper um, was used really to to cover up and to try to justify what was clearly unjustifiable. Uh, the reality, again, is those who were on the site, a dean of the campus, campus security, even the man overseeing the National Guard said they heard no shots right beforehand. There was no shooting going on there was no sniper. And the FBI confirmed that there was no evidence inside the dormitory either. So though that was a storyline that was put forward by the state, it's false. Yeah. You know, there's a piece here that I'm very familiar with the campus and you've spent time there and writing the book. But there's something that I want to, if you can give the listeners sort of the physical distance or layout. You talked about that there was a fire, a dump truck fire at Stewart Hall that had been put out by the fire department. Stewart Hall was not where the shooting took place. The the shooting took place at Alexander Dormitory, which is the women's dormitory. So let me ask you a basic question. Was there anything going on at Alexander, like fire, student protest, anything? What was sort of happening at Alexander? What would make them turn and go that way? Honestly, it was a lot of kids hanging out. I mean, I have I talked to several people who were on site that evening and they describe a night not long before graduation. Women had to be inside the dorms by 1130. So men would often congregate in the courtyard. Women would be leaning out the window to chat. In fact, Philip Gibbs was there talking with his sister, Mary, who lived on the first floor. And they were you know, talking through the window, for instance. Uh, one person talked about I think it was Vernon Steve Weekly who said, well, that's where the girls were. So that's, of course, where we all were. That's where the lovers were. I mean, that's the sort of mood. Another man, Larry Breland, told me, you know, everybody was just chilling out. Music was playing. People say it was a nice Mississippi evening. And then this armed force comes at them. Um, but even after the force arrives, I think it's really important to clarify. First, they had no reason to march to the center of campus. It was against their orders to march, march to the middle of campus. So they were in breach of their own protocol. And then in Mm -hmm. turn, the students hadn't done anything. 
They started to yell epithets and, and, you know, swear at the officers, I'm sure. But who wouldn't? The students felt that they were being invaded by a heavily armed white force. And this was their campus. So that's very understandable. And when the police asked them to step behind the, the three foot chain link fence that separated the road from the dormitory and its grounds, every student did so. And again, Vernon Steve Weekly will talk about this because he told me, you know, I will never forget it. They own that street. They had it. And so, again, there's nothing to explain the opening fire except uh, the white supremacy of policing at that time, the reality that this is a anti-black racist police force uh, and that they brought with them some sort of assumptions about these students and their danger that were incorrect and led to the violence that, that then did transpire. Yeah, thank you for that. I want to um, just dig in a little bit, bit more uh, in terms of, uh, you, you talked a little bit about it, that sort of that type of rock throwing or what have you was not uncommon on campuses in, in the late 60s and early 70s or what have you. And I want to get to the student aspect of it, but I, I want to sort of put three groups or three sort of things in context here. We'll get to the student sort of movement last. I want to talk about just sort of what was going on in terms of the mindset of Black people and Black students in Mississippi uh, around civil rights and Black power uh, and just sort of the mood of the campus. And also with um, where was white America, white Mississippi, but especially the white South as it relates to what's commonly known as the Southern Manifesto and how to let's start with the Southern Manifesto. What was it and how does that play into sort of the context of, of the, the mood of the state? That's a wonderful question, because this cannot be understood without putting it in the in the context of the civil rights movement and what was you know, this ongoing struggle for real freedom in the United States for black Americans that was routinely repressed and often violently by white communities. So in the wake of the Brown decision on May 17, 1954, and then Brown two on May 31st, 1955, the leadership of the white South, and here I mean political leadership, the members of Congress and of the Senate together write up a declaration of principles, which comes to be known as the Southern Manifesto, in which they say they will resist Brown. They say they'll use only legal measures, but it's very clear that they're backed up by a number of extra legal measures as well. I think, for instance, of the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission, which is a, essentially a, a private uh, or a secret police agency. It reminds me of something we'd expect to find in, in the old Soviet Union or Eastern Europe um, that was spying on the civil rights movement, for instance. You have police forces that are violently repressing activists who are trying to demand, challenge the state to actually live up to the promises that the Brown decision had put in place. And so as you see people wanting the rights that are declared by way of the Brown decision and then, you know, really extrapolated out from there, as you have young people, particularly after 1960 and the rise of a student, black student movement, you have extraordinary resistance from the white community. And here I mean, again, not outside of political structures, but within the political structures. So police forces, city governments, county governments, state governments, um, leadership that goes to Washington. These are people who are actively trying to fight back against the civil rights efforts. Nevertheless, the civil rights movement right, is making real changes. And that's also a really important part of the story. 
thank you for 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 that piece. Having said that, Mississippi is definitely a site for the fight for civil rights. And there's a lot of activity in the state, but also in the city of Jackson, particularly Tougaloo College, for instance, was very active. And so how did sort of the activity that was going on with the state in terms of SNCC, core and the student movement sort of sort of advanced civil rights. And and I don't now that is a huge question and we don't want you to sort of drain it, but I think it's important. No, and that's actually it's a wonderful. I'm so glad you asked the question because it's a complex one really when we think about the place of Jackson State, for instance, on in all of that. Black students were absolutely in the leadership of the movement in Mississippi as they were nationwide. There's several civil rights organizations. Mississippi is unique for having COFO, right? The federated organizations that come together, in fact, to work on civil rights in the state of Mississippi. And SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, is absolutely an essential part of that. In Mississippi, the NAACP is also really, really important, right? With Medgar Evers right there in Jackson as well. I want to mention that the COFO office was actually about a block off campus right there next to Jackson State College. So it's true that Jackson State College was, over the course of the 1960s, less well known as an activist site. The reasons for that are so obvious. Who is the board of trustees? It's the Mississippi Board of Higher Education, peopled entirely by white Mississippians, who are requiring that the president of the campus keep a really tight lid on everything that goes on on that campus. So when students are involved, when students step up alongside the Tougaloo students, they are often expelled. Uh, So it was a real choice that students at Jackson State had to make. And remember, many of these students are first in their family to go to college. They are the, the hope of their entire families. So they're making choices that are really reasonable ones about how involved they can be and what kind of risks they can take. But again, that said, there were always students at Jackson State who were engaged and were involved. And that area right near the campus was very much a hub for the Black community and for Black activism. I should mention as well the Masonic Temple that's right there. But again, was a site for major civil rights meetings for the NAACP, again, just a block off of campus. So Jackson State sat there being relatively conservative through much of the 1960s for reasons that make sense. And then in 1967, they actually get a new president. And when Dr. John A. Peoples comes, things begin to change. He talks about having a revolution in our books. He says, I'm going to be a new, a different kind of college president, a different kind of black college president. In fact, he says that to Stokely Carmichael uh, when Stokely comes to campus. And he explains that he really wants this to be a place where students get to expand their minds and learn about their world. And so you have African-American studies starting to be incorporated into the curriculum. You have the founding of what will become the Margaret Walker Center. You have uh, people like Stokely Carmichael invited to campus. And you have a real effort on the part of the students, I think, as well. You watch the headlines and the stories in the blue and white flash, the student newspaper, and you can see the change as students realize it's, it's now safe to have an opinion about these political questions that are, of course, tearing the entire nation apart. But by the time you get to 1970, the assault on Jackson State, again, when I say something makes sense, I don't mean that that makes it right. But you can see how the pieces fell in place because this was a campus that was changing. This was a campus of young black Americans who were striving and challenging and finding their voices and becoming more active and had big plans for themselves. 
And that's the campus that the state assaults on that night. Yeah. And and so to that end, uh, who is uh, Benjamin Brown? Benjamin Brown was a local civil rights activist, by all accounts, a lovely young man, had worked for Delta Ministry, had done a lot of active work uh, in Mississippi around civil rights. Uh, and in 1967, there was some unrest along Lynch Street. Again, I've mentioned that that was a perennial occasion in 1967. That spring was no different. Benjamin Brown was actually not on campus at that point, but he was going to meet up with a friend at a restaurant nearby. And he went to Lynch Street. Uh, there were a lot of black businesses around the campus back in the day. It was a real, just a thriving black business district um, before they before they blocked off the road. And he went to campus, near campus, excuse me, to meet up with his friend to get a burger. And the place they were going was closed, so they went somewhere else. So they were there a few minutes. And it is at exactly the same time that the police decide to march against those who were engaged in some um, a bit of unrest on Lynch Street. And they open fire, the police, again, claiming that they were endangered, though, again, they weren't. Uh, and in the aftermath, it, it turns out that Benjamin Brown had been shot dead. He had been running from the police uh, with a friend. They're trying to get away and he's shot in the back and, and dies literally on the on the side of the road. That's a terrible tragedy. Uh, and again, they don't know for certain who shot Ben Brown, but mm-hmm. they know which officers were there and they know the highway patrol opened fire. And they know that a man named Lloyd Jones was one of those officers who fired. He claimed to have shot in the air, but later investigations by the state suggest that he was the likely shooter. And he was the commander of the Highway Patrol forces on May 14th, 15th, 1970. It shows you the linkages it, It's that this isn't something that had never happened before, that the police were frequently coming to Jackson State College. They were frequently acting in aggressive ways. They were frequently acting as if they were endangered when they were not. And then they would frame it all around that of this language that we need to maintain order. And what they were doing was creating tremendous disorder. And we have examples not only on Jackson State, but really across the South and, and eventually across the North of, as well of, of police opening fire in, in moments when they did not need to and should not have, when it was actually against protocol to do so. Um, and so this 1967 case just is a, a perfect illustration of the ways in which this is part of a much longer arc of history um, that begins long before and continues, as we well know, well long after. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really thank you for that, because I think the, the, the shooting of Ben Brown is something that either it, it's just like so many things. It just does not get talked about enough. Let me say this and, and make a strong emphasis and triple underline this. We cannot talk enough about the shooting and the assassination of Megar Evers and actually understand who he was and what he was doing and why he was a threat. So I, I don't want to to say that we're talking about anything too much. I think it's a case of doing more. And the shooting of Ben Brown is sort of one of those things that just kind of just goes by the wayside. So uh, with that, so we have the Southern Manifesto and just sort of where the South in particular is. And as Dr. Jim Lowen said, and sort of lies my teacher told, I, I saw an interview with him where he said that Mississippi is America. It's just an exaggeration, but it's in America. It's, it is American. So what's happening in Mississippi is definite in line with the sort of massive resistance. We have the militarization with the police and sort of Thompson's tank and just the paranoia uh, about people uh, advancing civil rights and advancing 
human rights and, and really upending the social structure. But then there's another thing that's happening in the, the late 60s. Actually, a couple of things is that where there's a shift from civil rights and sort of just the 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 way that black people were approaching sort of um, how is freedom best obtained into black power, which is you talked about Stokely being on campus. Talk about why that was a big deal. Uh, would Stokely Carmichael have been on campus when Jacob Reddick was president? No, he, he would have been a far too challenging. And in fact, they had all kinds of rules uh, about who could be invited to campus. They had to go through, you know, multiple layers before students could invite somebody to campus. Uh, and even having Stokely Carmichael there was very complex. Uh, but President People supported the effort to show the students that actually this is going to be a campus where we have the real free exchange of ideas. But I think your point is really well taken about the emergence of black power. And that's another really important context for this. It's part of why I think the campus has come alive in the ways that it has. By 1966, you know, 67, many, especially younger black Americans are seeing the gains that civil rights makes and they're real and they're meaningful. Yeah. But they don't change everything. So let's say you live in Chicago on the south side. The fact that somebody in Mississippi registered to vote now isn't changing your life. Right. The fact that your family can't get a job in Detroit because black unemployment rates are so are just out the roof. That's not changing your life. And so there's the, the realization that appealing to the white person's conscience, as many said, was never going to be enough because, one, it takes more than people having the right feelings because these are systemic structural questions. And that second, a lot of people's consciences weren't being moved. And so by the late 1960s, many people are saying, you know, we need power. That's what that is. The language of this country, that is the way the systems of the country work. And so we've got to figure out how to have more power, political power, registering to vote, economic power, supporting black businesses and working to, to shop in one's own neighborhood. So the tax revenue comes back to you and cultural and social power. Um, this decision that actually black is beautiful. We need to cultivate the black arts. We need to have you know, we have to respect and appreciate and lift up all of these people in our own communities and quit measuring ourselves by what, whether or not white people like it. That's really inspiring. And you can just picture how much that would open up the world when you were young to be confronted with those ideas. And it would be life changing. And it was for many students, I'm sure, at Jackson State and especially people I've talked to. It's clear that this awareness of, of a new possibility of grounding oneself in the black community in a black campus was a very exciting idea and one that was completely opposed by much of white Mississippi. I mean, and that's terrifying. Know, white Mississippi. Yeah. Yeah, I, I will. I will also say that in addition to sort of black power, those things about economics and voting and just having just, you know, and, and, and things being desegregated, especially as it relates to sort of physical layout of the campus at the time. And you mentioned white Jacksonians driving in between the campus and sort of shouting epithets and people not stopping at stoplights. And there was also incidents of people being hit. One one woman uh, being hit to the point of needing surgery, yeah. all of those things. So I think there's a, a just a basic piece of of establishing power of space and just this is my space and just respect me and sort of the driving up and down campus and hurling epithets and and so now in the late sixties you're going to get called something back. It's just a whole lot that is 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 going on there at that point. And I think this, you're right. That's a really important point about Lake Street itself. I think. 
Uh, Robin D.G. Kelly wrote brilliantly about this a few decades ago now, about the importance of space, especially if you lack um, a lot of power in, in the country. One of the ways you can assert yourself is control over your space. And I think that's why I think that's one of the reasons Lynch Street was such a sight and understandably so for these students that this was a smack in the middle of their campus. It was their street and it should be their street. Uh, and, and yet instead, it was a site of invasion every single day. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 now I may be going way, way off into it. But there was a uh, a, a there is a place in South Carolina it's the Aiken Rhett House, and it was a formal, formally, it was, it was, it was, it's the home of one of the governors. And my wife and I visited there because in Charleston, you know, it's, it's plantations all over the place, and I'm somebody who visits plantations. So this is an urban sort of um, mansion or plantation, but the physical layout of it meant that those people who were enslaved could be seen by the people in the house at all times. Like there was no place on the property that they could go and not be seen. And so when I, when reading the book and reading it in context of the shooting with that sort of thoroughfare being open and not having your personal space just to, to be seemed uh, to me just a sort of one of those another psychological components of, of controlling people. Um, so thank you for indulging me there. You you are a professor. You're you not can, indulging. That's your next paper. No, I love that though because you're right on the money, and I haven't thought of that connection. But the notion of surveillance, because remember, this is where the police come every time when they chase somebody onto campus. The entry route is again Lynch Street, so it was very much again one more site of surveillance. It's funny you would mention that because I just was teaching the book um, All That She Carried by Taya Miles, which is this brilliant exploration of a of a family heirloom, a sack that was given by a, an enslaved mother to her daughter when her daughter was sold away from her. And it's, a, it's the best book I've read in a long, long time. But she writes a lot about Charleston and the way those houses worked and this, what a site of surveillance they were and all about that. So that's a, I just love that connection. Yeah, yeah. So that, just that was really so you're just a whole new thing we have to work through and think through. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, no, no. That, that, I appreciate the book. It's it's it's, it's actually led me in a, in a number of different directions. Uh, one one more piece of of context. So we've we've gotten sort of the Southern Manifesto, civil rights. There's also in the late sixties, late seventies, we got a war going on, and the student reaction mm -hmm. to that. How is that playing out in Jackson and Mississippi and across the country? That's of course a great question. Um, because the spring of 1970 is the moment for the incursion into Cambodia. So we had had unrest in the country around the war, really all the way back to even before the declaration of, well, there was no declaration of war, before the incursion of American troops into South Vietnam in large numbers, there had been people protesting the war. But that's really amped up over the course of the war, especially after 1968, um, when it's with the Tet Offensive, you know, the majority of Americans oppose the war by the time you get to 1970. But with the incursion into Cambodia at the end of April, you have campus exploding all over the country. And that's, of course, the, how we get the shootings at Kent State, which are so well known, of course, on May 4th, 1970, when four white kids were shot. But this idea that the war was going on, this was a real issue for students at Jackson State as well. And in fact, uh, after the shootings at Kent State, they had uh, a series of events to call attention to what was going on, to express their opposition to the war. So students were 
organizing around those issues. Some of the students who were out on Lynch Street the night of the 13th and of the 14th claimed that that's why they were out there. Other students said they were there for other reasons. Uh, I think the most common reason was this concern about Lynch Street itself. But the war was a real issue, and it had students really thinking about who they were and what their role and their responsibilities in the world were. Uh, and it also means that by 1970, that spring, there was a lot of unrest on college campuses. I mean, I, I don't have the figures to, head, to hand, but it, it's a very large number of campuses that experienced some sort of disturbance as a result of the shootings at Kent State, and a large number that don't even return for the rest of their semester. They just close down for the remainder of the year. So things are, are, are there's a lot going on. There's a lot of turmoil going on. And remember that all of that is being met by, on the conservative side, by the language of law and order. Mm -hmm. That yeah. this isn't a, this is not permissible. We have to maintain order, and that becomes a language, rhetoric that's used for repression and especially against black people. Um, mm -hmm. But it's coded language. So you can say law and order, and you can mean those kids at Jackson State are not going to get away with this. Right. And Richard Nixon is the one who really brings this to full fruition. But it had been in the air really since the Goldwater campaign of 1964. George Wallace figures out how to use it when he decides that even he could try a run for president and does very well in the North. And then Richard Nixon, of course, will really sell that and use that uh, to move the white Democrats into the Republican Party, uh, starting with the election in 1968. So you got all this turmoil going on and a new rhetoric ready to go to justify the kind of action that we see at Jackson State. Yeah. And, and, and so I, I, I'm glad you, you said that, uh, especially with the Nixon administration. That brings me to to something, uh, a piece of sort of, of when we at least think about racism as a, as a structure um and just sort of the 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 atmosphere what are the, sort of the major media outfits in Mississippi the Clarion Ledger and WLBT um what are they sort of um what's their attitude around um civil rights and black power and the southern manifesto i mean are they neutral are they are mm. they innocent are they a, uh, they are not innocent. They are not innocent. Okay, so yeah, let's just just go to so so talk a little bit about that. The Clarion Ledger and its sister paper in Jackson. At that point, there was a, a morning paper and an afternoon paper, both owned by the the Hayman family, and they are deeply white supremacist. Mm -hmm. uh, and so. Everything is being covered from the perspective of white supremacy, that civil rights is wrong, that the Brown decision is wrong, that the students are wrong. Uh, and they will cover each year when the police come to Jackson State, 64, 65, 66, and the, the years leading up to it. They will cover those stories as if there is complete mayhem at Jackson State, that these kids are wild and crazy and out of control and dangerous. They have accepted this law and order rhetoric and applied it really artfully, I fear, to the Jackson State students. So if you read the articles in the years leading up to it, the entire white Jackson community has been convinced that this is a really dangerous group of young people. And that facilitates, of course, the shooting happening. If, that, if you believe these kids are dangerous, 
Well, you'd have to believe that to be able to open fire on these kids and you'd have to not care about their well-being. But the newspaper in Jackson was absolutely and completely um, aligned with white Mississippi, with the Southern Manifesto, with the hostility to all civil rights activism. And that was true in the 50s and it is still true in 1970. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's really important in a I, I believe it's the. Freedom Summer documentary that 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 I saw and uh, the Citizens Council's office in Jackson was actually in the same building with WLBT. I mean, it was like right, like they were co-located together. I, I mean, didn't it, know that. that oh, yeah, huh. yeah, and 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 and, I, and and so and just stepping oh. back, just for just for the people who are listening in terms of the climate and. Um, I always say on on this show that if we were at a place in our history of where we were talking about bad behavior or racial slurs, there would be no reason to do this show. I do this show because I try to demonstrate how there are layers to this thing. There's sort of layers in terms of the economics of it, the politics of it, the media, what have you, that it's not just uh, individual acts of people behaving badly, but it's a system that is working and coordinating and everybody's playing their role. It's just like if there's a piece of music, you know, the oboe, the oboist is doing something different from the violinist, but at the same time, they're doing the same thing. If Miles Davis and John Coltrane are playing, they're both playing different instruments, but they're in the same piece of music. And, and, and so it's in service of that. Um, to that end, to go back to the night of the 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 shooting, um, with all of that in context, there are a couple of things that I have um, questions about. So there was some some talk of or rumor at that point that Charles Evers and his wife had been murdered, and and that had kind of people on the campus you know, just on edge. Um, is that, that, that happened around that time, right? That, that was their rumor there, right? Yes. That's that night. That's that very night. And so people are agitated. Some of the kids on campus are angry. Others say we knew right away it was a rumor, you know, we didn't buy it, but others clearly were bothered by that. And that is, a, I think without question, a, a contributing factor to the mood for the students and how they were feeling, uh, understandably shaken. Again, this is the city in which Medgar Evers had been murdered, so it didn't seem unrealistic that that could have happened. Yeah, but the, but the thing is, is that also, like you said, there were a lot of people who didn't buy it because uh, their daughter was a student there. That's right. And and, and is dispelling it right pretty, pretty quickly and, right. and or what have you. And so, and this particular night where... The students at Jackson State were not having, I don't think, or I'm asking, they were not having a specific civil rights demonstration or a specific anti-war demonstration. That's not what was happening here. No, as far as I can tell. And again, there are people who will say that they were there because they were upset about the war. And some of the students who were at Stewart Hall 
that night. Some of the people who had been out the night before, that's part of it. So it, it, it's hard to disentangle. People uh-huh. were out that evening for a range of reasons, but there was not an organized meet at Stewart Hall or meet at Alexander Hall at a particular time to do a particular thing. Absolutely not. Again, there were students who were activists on campus by this time, but there wasn't a, an anti-war group on campus. There were people who'd organized demonstrations, but there was no organized group. So, no, that's not. And that's why the conflation with Kent State, you know, is so disturbing because they're really not the same event at all. Yes, please open fire on young people on two campuses, but they're different. Yeah, this is different because there's, this is uh, this is not like um, a, a term of, of this. There wasn't a mass meeting called there or on for the campus, like in order with flyers or like come to the camp. That's not that's not what was happening. And then just to go back to sort of where we started, um, the ruckus if any, was at Stewart Hall and not at Alexander Hall, which meant that the law enforcement who did the shooting had to turn and go in the in a different direction. And the shooting at Alexander, was it onto one floor of where a sniper would have been or what where what was the, the damage? The damage was extensive. Um according to Bert Case, who was uh news reporter who was on site at the time, he said he watched them. At first, he assumed they had to be, you know, had to be shooting tear gas or it had to be blanks or. And then he said, I just watched them just spray from the top of the building all the way down to the bottom. And remembering down at the bottom, there are lots of students, you know, 50, 100, 150 students outside. And then the stairwell is filled with with female residents of the dormitory wondering uh, what's going on outside? So some of the injuries are actually inside the dormitory um, as the officers just let loose for 28 seconds. Um, and again, you can see even today the, the 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 shot marks on the exterior of the building um, because the students demanded that 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 history be kept, that that evidence of what happened to them wouldn't be taken away, but would remain there so that people wouldn't forget. Yeah, and 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 so what I would say to anyone there is that again, as, a, as someone who's a student there, and you know, I go a few times a year now for football games and various things, is that you will see the evidence of the shooting there, but that is small. Uh, you can either look in Dr. Bristol's book or online. The the damage was extensive and is throughout the entire dorm, and so there are two people who are killed in the shooting. 12 reporting injuries, others, you know, that I've, I've talked to, you know, people who were there and say, I just went home. I didn't, didn't stay or whatever. That's right. It is amazing that it was minimized to those 12 people who were shot and two were killed. It could have been much, much worse with that level of, of ammunition yeah. and focused into the women's dorm where there had never been an incident prior to that. No, that's exactly right. And in some ways, it's 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 a miracle that more people uh, weren't injured or killed. I think it's important to mention, though, as you said, that 12 is is what we know. uh, But there were surely other people likely injured. And I think we have to remember that there's also there's other kinds of injury besides the physical. And I think a Mm -hmm. lot of people did suffer from, you know, terrible trauma uh, in the aftermath. I know that some people did. And I suspect that was quite extensive as well. And I think you have to remember as well the sense of loss. These two young men that, that died left families behind who, who were devastated by what took place. Philip Lafayette Gibbs was a junior, but he was married. 
he was an older student. He had a son and he had another son on the way, but he didn't know that at the time. Mm. So when he's murdered, that leaves his wife um, with two children and just the devastation of loss. They were from Ripley, Mississippi. And James Earl Green was the middle of nine kids. He'd been working the wag a bag the Wagabag grocery doing uh, being a car hop since he was 11 and had always given some of his earnings uh, to his siblings or to his parents as needed. Uh, he was, as his family describes it, the life of the family, just a joy filled young man that was just everyone's heart. Uh, and so the loss of him, you know, you can't even begin to talk about what that means. So the injuries, you can have some statistics that tell us how many people were were physically hurt and the two people died, but it doesn't begin to get at just the depth of of, of consequence for this uh, and the trauma that it has meant and continues to mean um, for a whole community. Uh, so again, I'm really happy that you'll be having um, Mr. Weekly on because he'll be able to speak to that um, from his own personal experience. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's why I want to to make sure that he would be a part of it. So because because of that reason. Fallout from this, from a legal standpoint, did the school family seek, were there criminal charges brought against the, the, the state? And were there any civil cases or anything like that? That's such an important question. Thank you, Mark. Um, yes, there's a lot of action in the aftermath. There's even a brief moment of hope because uh, the attorney general promises that this will be taken care of appropriately because the Mississippi Highway Patrol refuses to cooperate with the FBI in the aftermath. So there is a federal grand jury called. Unfortunately, the man, William Cox, who's put in charge, the judge, is a well-known racist. He's the man who had had um, thrown out many of the charges against those who murdered Shurner, Cheney, and Goodman during the summer of 1964. He was known to use the N-word in court. His grand jury not only didn't bother to file a report, but they certainly didn't bring down any indictments. There was also a Hines County grand jury. They had one indictment only. It was for a black man that they accused of unrest. Charges against him were eventually dropped for lack of evidence. They did not lay out any indictments against the state officers or the city officers uh, and in fact, used language that said essentially um, when people do the kinds of things that the students did at Jackson State, they need to expect to be injured or hurt or injured or killed. So they essentially justify what took place. Uh, a couple of years later, though, the families of the two that had died, as well as three of the victims who survived, filed suit against the city, the state, the MHSP, the police officers, the mayor, the governor. I mean, they really went to court very ably uh, defended initially by uh, a remarkable woman. Um, I can talk more about her in a minute, um, Constance Slaughter Harvey. Um, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, they also were assisted then with a New York law firm. And when they got to court, that law firm demanded that one of their partners actually do the opening statement and it completely undercut the entire case. Uh, he was a bumbling buffoon, frankly, in the courthouse. Not surprisingly, the all-white jury found for the state and in the process used the rhetoric of law and order to paint even James Earl Green and Philip Lafayette Gibbs as criminals as part of a mob on appeal. And they had assumed they'd end up needing to appeal. They were successful. Unfortunately, the officers were all covered by sovereign immunity. So no, there was no... Um, no compensation paid and went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court refused to hear it. So ultimately, no compensation was made. No one was held responsible and no apologies were made. It's really a tragic 
a second set of crimes, frankly, um, topped off only by the fact that then it, this is all forgotten by most of the country, which is for me the, the third crime or the, the third real failure and tragedy. Yeah, um, with, with just that that sort of um, sovereign immunity and the troopers being protected there. Um, with um, just to, just to go back a little bit, there's something that made me want to to go back to the to the shootings. Um, after the shootings have ceased, after the 28 seconds of of, of fire into Alexander. There are people on the ground there. I mean, what was the care that the troopers or or Jackson police or how are students cared for um, afterwards? It's really important to bring up because, in fact, they are not cared for by the state or city officers. Those forces turn to picking up their own spent shells and ordering the students around, using the N-word in some cases, uh, and bossing them around and demanding that they do some things. But they offer no care whatsoever. Um, the National Guard, when they do finally make it into campus from, you know, 100 plus meters away, uh, they will ultimately assist the students in being loaded into ambulances and things. But initially, it's the students taking care of themselves. Uh, and they did that great with great bravery, because remember, the, the armed police forces are still there. But students really move and they move quickly to help one another. They take people into Alexander Hall to try to help them. Uh, some of them they move to prepare to put into ambulances. But it's the students. Um, that stand up for one another, uh, again, in what must have felt like a terribly precarious and dangerous situation uh, to look after one and, and to try to save the lives of those who unfortunately um, were killed. Yeah, in the, in the country after the, the shootings at Jackson State, there is coverage, uh, but a lot of it is deemed as Kent State too, meaning or just a, another tragedy. What has sort of caused this to go out of public memory. I mean, certainly there's those things, and I just kind of talked about it with it being labeled as just another Kent State. But why is this not known, well known? When I think the first thing, and it, it has to be said, and it has to be said over and over and over again, this is because it's about black kids. Remember that there'd been a shooting at South Carolina State two years earlier. Three kids yep. have been killed, and tw- I shouldn't call them kids. I, sorry, I'm old enough now that I tend to refer to these people as, as kids, and yeah, I don't mean that in a yep, condescending way. Uh, these young people, uh, three young men had been killed and 27 other students had been injured um, in the wake of protesting a, a bowling alley. But they, again, were on their own campus. It was 1960. It was two years before Kent State. So the reason Kent State becomes the sort of iconic shooting of students in this era is certainly in part because they're white and the white nation cares more about them. It's a terrible thing to have to say, but I, I, it is the truth. The mm-hmm. second piece of that, I think, is the ways is what you just said about it being seen as Kent State too. In some ways, many people who I think did identify with the students and cared about Jackson State failed to recognize, though, that this was a racial shooting. This wasn't about protest. This was about white law enforcement officers in Mississippi opening fire on black students. And that's how it needed to be understood. That's how it was understood by the Jackson State community and I think by the black community, not only of Jackson and Mississippi, but of the country many white Americans tended to look away from that because then they are, in a sense, uh, complicit in in having allowed systems to to survive that made it possible. And so for many white liberals, um, they turned away from this and were comfortable with it being sort of conflated with Kent State because then you don't have to face the sort of difficult questions about what took place at Jackson State. 
Um, and, and it's easier if you conflate the two, you only have to remember one, right? Mm-hmm. And you can actually, you can literally watch the process of, of forgetting or of erasure, maybe is the better way to describe it. If you look at media coverage, something like the Chronicle of Higher Education, which people like me read, it's about what's going on on college campuses nationwide. The first year, lots of coverage. The second year, a little bit of coverage. By the time you get to, to five years later, it's sort of over on the side as others who died. Yeah. Uh, and by the time you get to the 15th, it's disappeared entirely. Same thing happens in the New York Times. So it, it's very frustrating because the story was covered initially, not to the same extent, but it was in the New York Times. It was on all three major networks that night. It was a story that people were aware of, and then they're not. Yeah, because it, like you said, it's just business as usual. The state of Mississippi, uh, white people um, having state or or extra legal or vigilante or, or a militarized sort of uh, uh, hate groups killing black people is this just not just not a big story. Or it should be a big story, but it's 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 sort of business as usual. And I don't I don't mean that in a crude way that is sounding, but that's that's kind of what it is. Um, one thing no, that I that, do. Not only that, but I, another, one other point I would make alongside that, Mark, is that this wasn't the only shooting on historically black college campus. Not only did we have the one at South Carolina State, but there's extensive violence against black students nationwide over the course of this period. And, and other scholars have determined that at least 13 black young people, black students were murdered during this time period by officers of the law. So, again, to dismiss it as Kent State 2 you know, again, erases not only the history of this one incident, but of this long story. And this is only one chapter, again, going back to slavery and coming forward all the way to, you know, we can can come to Tyree Nichols because he's he's the one that is most in my mind today. But it's really important to ask, how is it forgotten? Because the forgetting of it makes possible its persistence. Thank you for that. That is that is perfect, um, because there were other shootings. You mentioned uh, South Carolina State, but at Southern and at Jackson State, there's just and and. When uh, just hey, and and I'm talking about a, a rudimentary sort of search of books on Kent State. If you do Kent State shootings, you're gonna have over 30 books. I'm talking about you know from people like yourself who are scholars, beginning to end, or people who were there, what have you. Then you've got a ton of documentaries, and it is if you queue up a movie from the 70s, I'm talking about a a sort of dramatic movie or what have you. Kent State will be the stand-in for this was a time of sort of student unrest, but Jackson State, Southern, um, uh, South Carolina State don't get mentioned at at all. And if you look at the, so we're going to have Vernon Steve Weekly on. His is a first-person account. I want to say that your book is only the second that's kind of a begin to end as a sort of uh, an academic or scholar or mm-hmm. by a historian. Is that I think that's right. I, that's what I saw, at least. Yeah. No, that's yeah. that's true. Uh, and, and that was part of what drove me to write it. Um, certainly, I had trepidation about doing so, um, because speaking for others, and obviously I'm a white scholar, um, also gave me great pause. Um, and I recognized again and again that there will, as a result, be limitations to what I accomplished. Um, but people from inside the story kept encouraging me to go forward. Um, but I think it's really important that, again, the voices of those who were, who were there, the Constance Slaughter Harveys and the, the Vernon Steve Weekleys and the Leroy Kentras continue to be heard because they are the ones who can really tell the story of what took place. 
Yeah, so, so to that end, say a little bit more about that. How, how were you? How did you first become aware of the story? I guess I, I'm not even sure. What I can say is I became aware of the importance of the story um, because I teach African American history, and I've been doing that for 33 years. And right. one of the themes in a course such as that, or in any course um, that has Black history as a part of it, is state violence. And so for me, I think it, I actually do know what it was. I was teaching a course on the 1960s, and a student, John Moore, uh, wrote a really good paper about Jackson State. And he really got me to thinking about the ways in which he really alerted me to how different this was from Kent State. And I think I knew about Jackson State, but didn't understand anything about it. And this very smart young man wrote a paper for a class. And I was like, wait a minute. Okay. So not only have I misremembered it, but it's part of a completely different story, the story I'm already really preoccupied by. And so that really turned me to thinking about doing some research on it. And then I had support from some people at Oxford University Press to, to pursue this story. Um, and they were very supportive of it and have been um, throughout its publication, in fact. Yeah, well, well I, I am glad you wrote it. And thank you for And I'm glad you said it about, you know, what it's like to be a white scholar coming in and telling the story, because I'm sure people will look and say, well, how is she writing it? Why? What have you? But I am someone who believes that we need as many of these stories done as well as we can, because there's not just sort of one angle at it. And, and we need more, not less. The climate in the state of Mississippi, I'm talking about the state of Mississippi right now. Uh, the legislative session is uh, there's a, a bill, HB 1020, which sort of divides the city of Jackson. And it's really a sort of it, it looks like very much like apartheid to me of where there's a whole district being created and um, th th it wasn't voted on. Uh, they they have no accountability to the citizens of Jackson or any of that. I look at um, the infrastructure money that was coming from the federal government to the state of Mississippi, and listen, there there's a pothole everywhere you go in Jackson, and we know about the water, but the state is taking that money and not allocating it to Jackson. And then there's a whole crisis around sort of the. Um, temporary aid for needy families that's going on and it's associated with Brett Favre, but that's just, that's, that's, that's actually not the story. The story is much bigger than that. How does the, how did the shootings and what's happening now from, from a place of scholarship go together or tie together? Well, a couple of things. One is where we started, the very context that we were talking about at the very beginning, which is systems of white supremacy were put in place during the period of enslavement, and they didn't go away in 1865. And they haven't gone away because of Brown versus Board or the Civil Rights Act or the Voting Rights Act or anything has come afterwards. And so we continue to wrestle with systems that were born in anti-Black racism and in the intention of having a racial hierarchy in the country. And we haven't, un we haven't unbuilt that, nor have we really reckoned with the history. And I think until you reckon with it, it can, as Martin Luther King says, it will continue to read to, um, the history will continue to matter because we have not reckoned with it. Um, but the second thing I think is that the shooting was very much a part of a kind of criminalizing of a, of a number of Americans through this language of law and order and a sort of a dismissal of black citizens as lesser and as dangerous and that was then picked up by people like Ronald Reagan and used to undercut social programs so that the poor then were also demonized. 
It leads then to mass incarceration, what gets called today the new Jim Crow, the massive incarceration through the the, um, war on drugs. And all of that has continued to perpetuate this persistent understanding that somehow black citizens don't deserve the same rights that actually are put in place by the 14th Amendment. And so for me, there's a direct line between it. You, it's, you can only open fire on students if you disregard the value of their life, right? And yeah. it's that same disregard, that disregarding the, the importance of their voice, the importance of the well-being of the Black community of Jackson. I mean, what's happening there is so disturbing around voting. You know, how many times do we have to revisit the idea of the 15th Amendment yeah. of the 1965 Voting Rights Act? It's just it's incredible to me. It's of a piece. And that's the key is that it, I would tie it one more place, which is this effort to um, defang African-American studies, the AP program, the this crazy fear around critical race theory, which is a fear around telling the truth about the history of race in the United States. All of that is connected to creating a mythology around the country or perpetuating an ongoing mythology around the country that we have all been treated equally. And if we don't have the same stuff, it's our own fault. And for yeah. me, that's just devastating as an American that my my fellow citizens are so mistreated um, for reasons that are absolutely and in no way um, their own fault. It's just it's horrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, I will add on to that. And there's something that um, there's a couple of places in your book steeped in the blood of racism. Um, talked about this one is and i and i have crude notes right here so i don't have the the exact quote but you talk about that the state violence justified by historical stereotypes that criminalize african-american aspiration and activism and so when i thought about that read that quote from from your book i thought that these jackson state shootings yes there's some clearly you're talking Mississippi and you're talking the 60s and 70s. There's all of the civil rights and black power stuff that's going on. Clearly, there's, you know, just student sort of protests, Cambodia, Vietnam. You mentioned all of those things, you know, that are there. And there's always just sort of the just the, the most crude form of suppression through violence that happens a whole lot in the state of Mississippi. But there's something else. And it was the word aspiration that triggered this for me. I kind of am putting Jackson State now in line with places like Tulsa or Elaine, Arkansas, where there were sort of these massacres of when there are black people. It's a college campus and they're black people. And you mentioned, you know, kids out sort of uh, partying or what, you know, I called it the girls dormitory when I was there. I call it the women's dormitory now because I'm supposed to. But when I was there, it's the girls dorm. Right. You coming from I didn't live in Stewart. I lived in Dixon or New Men's. My son lives in Stewart now. So you you go down to the girls dorm. You go into Alexander. You're going to chill out. You're going to listen to some music. If you're in a fraternity or whatever, you're going to step. You're going to you're going to. That's just what's happening. And so there's a, a point of me that looks at this as that. These are black people who are aspiring to do better. And that's kind of like the Tulsa and Elaine and um, East St. Louis of places where there were pockets of uh, what I call African-American resistance through excellence and through joy. 
Am I on to something there or am I way off? Uh, you're definitely on to something. And it's, it's, I'm glad to hear you say that because it convinces me that because I just gave a talk last weekend and I'm giving a, another one later this week I, and I bring up Tulsa as one of the sort of part of the long arc that I see that it's, it's assaults on success. It's assaults on forward thinking, organizing, you know, community based efforts to, to succeed and aspire and raise up. That's what gets squelched, right? It's yeah. a fear of success, right? Which, and again, you can look through American history and find so many examples of that. Um, and, and in fact, it gets used against other communities as well. You think about, what was the, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act about? What was the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II about? Different stories, but again, communities being repressed because they were being successful, not yeah. because they posed any sort of danger. Well, the danger was their success. So I think I don't think you're off base at all. I, you reassure me that that my thinking about that might be right. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, I, that definitely comes to mind for me. How long did it take you to write this book, and sort of what was the the process? Because you've got Lots of interviews in there of people that I know really well and some that I know the names of and some that I've reached out to introduce myself to. Um, so you covered a lot of ground there. How long did it take you to, to, to pull this together? It took me about nine years. Um, I'm a full time college professor, so I teach a lot of students. And, and that's really my top priority has to be the education of, of the young people that I work with. Um, that's who pays my wages. Uh, and who bring me great joy. Um, but doing this work was also just has been the most profound um, growth experience for me as, as a as a scholar and as a thinker and as and frankly, as a person. Um, I was able to there's an extraordinary collection of primary source materials, everything from telegrams received by President John Peoples to photographs from the days immediately following to the blue and white flash newspaper to the transcripts of the hearings or excuse me of the trial the civil suit all of it is collected at Jackson State which made this in some ways the easiest logistically of any project I've ever done but as you say given that I also did some interviews also the hardest that I've ever done because in interviewing people I was asking them to recount the worst moment for in many of these people's lives and their generosity in, in sharing their stories for me, you know, will again, will bring me to tears because it's, it speaks to how much they want other people to know what happened to them. That's why they were willing to talk with me. Um, they were doing it because they were doing it for someone they cared about who was hurt or for themselves because they want the story out there. But it also required a real generosity of, and, and spirit of trust that, that they offered me that, I hadn't necessarily earned or deserved. So my gratitude is so deep for the, some of the relationships I had an opportunity to develop um, through this research. It was a an extraordinary experience um, to have met many of the people that you're talking about. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, too, because, again, it's it's very personal to me where where we started. And if my understanding of of sort of your agreement with the book, there's there's you're giving back to the school with this as as well. Right. Yes. Um, so Oxford University Press takes their cut because they do have to they're a nonprofit themselves. So they have to stay in business. Yeah. And they're continuing to make it possible to have those at reasonable prices. So they take their share. But any of the proceeds that I get, I have a, just have a check in my briefcase. I got two days ago. I got to get sent off. Um, so uh, 
I said it to Robbie Luckett, who runs the Margaret Walker Center and who also oversees the Gives Green Remembrance Fund. And it helps to pay for the remembrances that happen on campus each year. There was no way I could take any proceeds from this. It would it would feel like, I don't know, blood money. It would be wrong um, if, you know, I shouldn't be paid for what I did. I'm, I'm the, I was a lucky recipient of, of people's stories uh, and the opportunity to, to try to tell a story. So, yes, any money that I earn from this goes straight to the, whether it's a talk or the sales of the book, it goes to Jackson State. Well, thank you so much for that. As we come to a close, what does it mean to live well? I think for me, to live well has a couple of pieces. It means to get to continue to grow in some way. And I've been so blessed with that, in fact, including even having done this project. And I think it involves contributing to other people. I think we are only fully human when we are in relationships with others and those relationships have to be mutual and caring and sharing. And so having the opportunity to have those kinds of relationships where you're able to to gain from others, but also to contribute to the well-being of other people. For me, that's that's what living well means and certainly what I've aspired to. It's always a work in progress. Thank you. And we close with music in, on the parlay in all blue. And you are working on a book like this and someone says, well, hey, you know, we want to give you a break and you are going to program a concert with live musicians and and you can bring people back. So this is, you know, we, we're time traveling here or whatever. And so you you've got an opener, a middle and a closing. What's your what's your dream? Of three. And it's 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 it's. From any era, any genre, any just what who would they be? Man, that's a good one. You'd have to have Aretha. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. You'd have to close with Beyonce, right? You'd have to close okay. with oh. Beyonce. Okay. And in the middle, okay, I'm gonna go, okay, I'll tell the truth. I could yes. do something pretty like Stevie Wonder, and that'd be a good choice. But he'd have to fight his way onto the stage against Donna Summer. I got to win that. I love me some disco back in the day. All right. Okay. So, so listen, I think there are a lot of people. So we've got Aretha, Donna Summer, and then Beyonce. The only thing that I think that our listeners or certainly a few people are going to quibble with is I think you better open with, I think you is, well, let me say this. I never met Aretha Franklin. But I think if you present a concert to her and she's opening and not closing, she may not show up. Oh, so I, I that's, that's the only fair. thing. Listen, hey, hey, I am telling you right now that in my household there's a conversation about should we take out a third mortgage or a 17th mortgage to go see Beyonce because I know the tickets are crazy expensive. So, you know, all hail to the queen. But I think you're going to get a lot of pushback when you call Aretha's people and say, we're doing this concert and you are the opener. That's the only thing that I would, I would quibble with. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. What I said you'd have to open with her. I wasn't thinking in the terms of, of an opener so much as who do you know you have to have? So, yeah, okay. you reverse right. that right away. And I'll be honest, you got to sneak Nina Simone in for me, too. Well, well, yeah, and it's Nina Simone's birthday. I, I listen. I, so we can go with those four because definitely the the Beyonce album that's out right now is very disco and house. So Donna Summer would be great to have in there. Right. I don't think we could have 
especially in this conversation that, that we're having, not have Nina Simone. The, the thing is, in case the, if time travel and sort of we're able to bring people back and you get to make the pitch, I want to make sure that you tell Miss Aretha Franklin that you are going to be the headliner so that you can have her there for you. You got conference. it. You got it. All right. Yeah, when I, when I, if I ever have that chance. All right. When you have that chance, you know, that's just, you can thank me for that in advance. And I want to thank you for your time and for this wonderful book, Thinked in the Blood of Racism, Black Power, Law and Order, and the 1970 shootings at Jackson State College. Uh, we will have it up on our site. And I have gone through it a couple of times, once just sort of reading just casually. And then, you know, I'm prepped for this episode and I get something out of it every time. It's a very good book. And when I want to say I enjoyed reading it, not because the content was, you know, it's, it's heavy content. So not because it's enjoyable, but I thought it was really well written. And I don't see how if there's anyone who's saying that it was not about racism or not understanding the context of what's going on. You covered a lot of ground in there, uh, both, like you said, with the various materials from newspapers, interviews, and then speaking to people. So it is a it's great job on the book. And thank you for being a part of the show. I'll just, just leave it there. Thank you so much for having me. An honor and a privilege to be here. And thank you so much. All right. Thank you. The Parlay in All Blue is produced by Raina Booth Podcast Productions. Music is provided by DJ Marky G. You can support us at buymeacoffee.com backslash parlayinallblue. Remember to like the show, leave a review, and share it. It helps to keep our work going and helps others to find us. If you have questions, comments, or show ideas, please email us at mark at theparlayinallblue.com. Finally, remember to follow us on social media. And thanks, be well, and we out.